0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. While you there, give me that email address. I'll give you the free ebook, the free audiobook, Forgotten Founders in American History. It's a great free gift and you get my, on my email list, and you get great coupons to McClanahan Academy. You get great stuff out of that. Go to McClanahan Academy. Purchase a class. It's how you can keep this podcast free of charge, or purchase 10 classes. I mean, I've got a lot available. It's a great website, a great resource, and you get great content for what you do purchase. Also, you can look on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate on one of my books. You can purchase one of my books. Another great way to support the show, click on the shop tab. Purchase my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Another great way to support the show. You can go to Learn True History. T-R-U-E, Learn True History. It's another great way to support the show. It's my fit link for Tom Woods' over to classroom. As always, though, share the podcast right on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And this is a listener-generated episode, so if you have ideas, send them my way. Now, oftentimes you hear this statement. What we need in America right now is we need people to learn more history we got to get more people interested in history. And look, I agree. Okay, I mean, I teach history for a living. I think history is very important. But if I was to say to you, okay, we need to teach more history, and so we're going to pull out the 1619 Project, and let's teach that to people. Is that really that good? So just this blanket statement of teaching history is highly problematic. And one of the things I often point to, when I start my semesters every semester, is how biased historians actually are. I mean, I'm biased. Look, you know it because you listen to me. I'm open about that. When I've written books entitled The Politically Incorrect Guide to Something, clearly, I'm biased. But a lot of historians get away with, or at least they try to get away with, being unbiased we're just objective. We're objective historians looking at things with an objective lens and you should just listen to us because we're just following where the information takes us. But that's not true. In fact, the mere selection of a topic shows your biases oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it does. For example, if I said, well, uh, if somebody said, "Hey, w- what's your what's your field of study?" and I said, "Well, I'm studying the civil rights era. Well, what are your biases going to be then? You know it. That person immediately, now probably 99.9% of the time is going to be a leftist. And they're going to study that because they think that this is an area that they really need to get into and we really got to have social justice and all these things. This is what they're going to do. History as a weapon. I'll never forget when I was in graduate school, the chair of the department. I was in his seminar, a reading seminar, and what what that means is they give you a bunch of stuff to read and you sit around the table and you talk about it and, you know, where it relates to the historiography and uh, to the history itself. And this professor sat there and said, well, the reason I'm a leftist today is because I studied history. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. The reason they're leftists is because they study history. But it depends on what history you're studying, for example, if I told you um, what we need to do is we need to study John C. Calhoun. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's a, okay, study John C. Calhoun. I mean, on the surface, that's very vanilla. We're going to study Calhoun. But if I said the only thing I want you to read is his positive good speech, well, then what's your impression of John C. Calhoun going to be? By the way, the positive good speech is going to be in my next class, 26 Peaches That Changed America, I'm going to talk about it there, and you're going to get a perspective on the positive good speech that you won't get from your mainstream historians, right? So, But even if we just said, let's just look at the positive good speech outside of historical context, we don't really examine the context of the speech. We just take it for this. Well, that changes the nature of the speech. And if all we're going to do is look at Calhoun through the lens of race, class, gender, which is what most people do, well, then... You're going to see Calhoun in an entirely different light. But what if we said, we're going to study John C. Calhoun, and we're going to look at a lot of things that he wrote. We're going to talk about what he wrote, what he said about government. What does this concurrent majority thing actually mean? What does he say in the disquisition? And I would venture to guess that if people actually took the time to do that, they would have a greater appreciation of John C. Calhoun than just the positive good speech, because here, here's a reality check. Most people that are quote unquote historians, even PhDs, have very little idea about what they're talking about on most subjects. They just have PhD behind their name, and so they think they're an expert on everything. That happens. Now, I will not claim to be an expert on everything. There's lots of things on. People send me, uh, you know, requests. Can you do it on this? There's things I, I'm I'm not comfortable talking about because I just don't know much about it. So I would be remiss if I said, all right, yeah, "All right, y'all go out and talk about that, and then I don't know anything about the subject, so that would, that would be terrible. So you've you got to understand that most historians, particularly now, are compartmentalized. They are experts in one little particular area that they know something about, and then they don't know much about a lot of other stuff. Or what they get about the other stuff is just basically what they're going to get from uh, a few lectures they've heard on it or uh, maybe they've read a few books on it maybe maybe they've maybe they've gone out and and pulled through the index some things they want to say about this or that of a book of somebody that's mainstream and they think they can trust that's the that's the extent of their knowledge quote unquote on a particular area and so this is why when i say if we're just going to we got to learn i mean i hear this we got to get our kids in school get them to learn more history they don't know enough history Okay, but what history are they going to get? Are they going to get Nicole Hannah-Jones? Or are they going to get Alan Gelzo? I mean, I'm using one on the left and the right. Are they going to get the 1776 Commission report? Is that the history they're going to get? Because if they're going to get that, well, they're going to get a distorted vision of the past. That's not a good thing. And who are the people that are teaching them these things? And I, and I, I did all this to set up what I want to talk about with the Gilder Learman uh, Institute of American History, their 2021 History Teacher of the Year finalists. This came out September 1st. And I want to talk about this particular thing because it shows you where the profession is. Okay. And now these are these are high school teachers. Okay, these are high school teachers. When you look at this. When you look at what these people are doing, and you think, okay, some of the stuff they do, yeah, I mean, these are interesting things. They get into some local history and some things like that, which are, okay, that's that's fine. Um, but when you look at what they are, they're a bunch of leftist activists, most of them. Most of them are leftist activists, and they are... Uh, They're teaching history in a way to create more activists. That's the whole point. So I want to go through this. First of all, we have a finalist from New Haven, Connecticut, a finalist from Newport Beach, California, a finalist from Columbia, South Carolina, a finalist from Chicago, Illinois, a finalist from Baltimore, Maryland, one from Minneapolis, Minnesota, one from D.C., one from Franklin, Kentucky, one from Ashburn, Virginia, and one from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So we've got a representative group from all over the United States. You've got New England. You've got the Deep South. You've got the West Coast. You've got the Midwest. Nothing really from the mountain states. Uh, So that area is not... But, I mean, these are the finalists, right? And so the the institute would ask them questions. For example, do you have a favorite or even a funny moment from teaching you would share with us? And so they give... Uh, Some favorite moments, funny moment or a favorite moment. So I'm just going to read some of these things and some of these questions. So first you have uh, a, a, a guy, Justin Mitchell. Justin Mitchell is from Kentucky. He says this, quote, one of my favorite moments, it's not funny or it's a favorite. One of my favorite moments in teaching was during our annual spring trip to the Memphis area with my advanced social studies students. On this trip, we end at the National Civil Rights Museum, which was always a highlight. But a few years ago, we happened to be on a tour with Pat Vale. This elderly lady was talking to all my students in the auditorium before the tour started, and we soon found out that she had participated in the 1964 Freedom Summer, which attempted to register as many African-American voters as possible in Mississippi. This is an incredible experience that he'll never forget. Now, okay, I mean, civil rights history, all right, that's interesting. But it's the way that that part of America, you're in Memphis. Is there anything else you can talk about in Memphis? Know, maybe they did some other things, but they always end up at this. This is the highlight of the trip to go to the Civil Rights Museum. The National Civil Rights Museum. The highlight of the trip. That's a leftist slanted class. So what you're going to get out of that is a bunch of leftist social justice activists. That's, I mean, this is what happens. You create activists. And some of these people are very open about doing that. Or how about Lindsay Sharon from California? I try to bring a bit of whimsy into the class at times, and I'll never forget the first time I dressed as Susan B. Anthony. <laughs> I wonder if Miss Sharon is married, because if she is, she wouldn't fit with Susan B. Anthony, because Susan B. Anthony actually considered marriage to be a penalty. It was almost a death sentence for a woman. This is, I mean, this is how she thought about the institution. And she said a lot of other colorful things about it. But, I mean, this was... This, I wonder if Ms. Sharon thinks the same way. The jaws of my students dropped as I welcomed them at the door. I did not break character as I went into discussing women's rights and the challenges she faced touring around the country presenting speeches. They were hooked, and they could not wait to dive into analyzing a declaration of sentiments afterwards. So here we've just created a bunch of women's activists. So you see... Which history are we getting? This is considered to be just great history here. Well, guess what? I'm going to talk about the Declaration of Sentiments in my 26 speeches that changed America, and I'm sure I'm going to disagree with Ms. Sharon as to what this thing actually does. Next question. Would you tell us an interesting historical fact about the town where you grew up or live now? All right. So here is... Natalia uh, Braginski, I'm sorry, from Connecticut. Natalia Braginski. Okay. My students have taught me so much about New Haven, a city whose history abounds with stories of resistance. This is New Haven, Connecticut. Stories of resistance. And the research for our map of New Haven's black, indigenous, and Latinx history, my students uncovered the unrealized dream to build what would have been one of the first HBCUs in the country here in New Haven in 1831. This attempt to create an HBCU, historically black college university, led by black abolitionists and minister Peter Williams, was blocked by Yale and New Haven leadership. As my former student uh, Damien puts it, in our walking tour, which recently featured on NPR's Disrupted, can you imagine how different, how much better New Haven would be if our country, if our city was home to one of the first HBCUs in the country? Well. Why would that make it I mean this is just this how much better it would be? Why would that make it better? Why would that make New Haven better? Now again, I'm not disparaging historic black colleges and universities. That, that's great. But why would that make I mean this is this is a this is a value and a, it's not as it's a subjective statement. It's not objective, it's subjective. Just this simple well, this is what we're studying. We're studying studying black, indigenous, and Latinx history. So is this what we want? I mean, this you send your kids to school, this is what you get from Natalia Braginsky. Just a few days ago, an archivist shared some primary sources about this history, and I finally learned where this HBCU would have been located, on the very street where our school now stands, just a few blocks east of where we learned this history. Oh my gosh! (gasps) So, I mean, come on now. Again, we can teach all this stuff, but she's clearly indoctrinating people with focusing on this. So, Is that the history you want to learn? Or how about Rivana Jihan of Illinois, Chicago, Illinois? Quote, I live in Chicago now, which has a well-documented history that is important to the culturally relevant lessons I teach. I grew up in Downstate, though, in Carbondale and Maconda, and went to high school in Cobden. One of the bits of history that I enjoy about Southern Illinois is the tenacity of activism that runs through the region. While there is a heavy conservative lean to Southern Illinois, there is also a rich history of struggle against oppressors, from slavery to worker exploitation to lack of human rights worldwide. I mean, so okay, she grew up in this, but she doesn't like that. She's into the struggle to the activism in this region. So I mean, that's this is highlighted now. Uh, one then you got this guy. This is funny. He's from uh, Minneapolis. His name is Martin Marin, and this is what he says. This is so out of place with this stuff. Well, the first bridge across the Mississippi, a toll bridge built in 1855, was built within the steps of our school. Today, from my classroom, I can see the six lane vehicular bridge, about the fourth iteration of that first bridge. That's all he said. That's what's interesting. I mean, that's great. That's good stuff. Okay, so isn't that cool? You got this bridge out. It's one of the first bridges across the Mississippi. This was the first bridge across the Mississippi. No, no. That, this won't win Martin Marin anything. He won't win an award on that. Why? Because he's not out there talking about enslavers and uh, civil rights museums and all. This is where people think history needs to go. Or how about Justin Mitchell? Uh, he was raised and uh, born and raised in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, now, this is the same guy that talked about the uh, the civil rights museum. So. He talks about a cave, the Lost River Cave. This cave was, has seen a lot of history from native hunting grounds and a Civil War campground for both the Union and Confederacy, the legendary hideout spot for the infamous outlaw Jesse James, and an underground nightclub in the 30s. So, okay, that's just normal stuff, right? I mean, all right, this has got a lot of cool stuff there. But, of course, he, he can't have that normal stuff, of course, is not going to pale. I mean, it pales in comparison to the stuff that he just talked about before, which, oh, everybody's going to eat up you got a guy that's uh, talking about a furniture industry. All right. Um, Now, what are your favorite historical sites or museums? This is where you get to fun stuff. Again, Martin Marin is not going to to win anything, but he had that very benign thing. But then he says this. Old cemeteries, including Minneapolis Pioneers and Soldiers Cemetery, were, according to some of my student researchers, The slaves that owned Dred, the slavers that owned Dred Scott when he resided in Minnesota's Fort Snelling are buried. Look at the language you use there. The slavers, not not the people that owned Dred Scott. Not the people. These are slavers. This is the language being used. So it's a great place because you've got people that are, Fred Scott. Now, he also says uh, Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, which during the early days of the Revolutionary War, was Washington headquarters and now filled with many historical figures. So Marin, where, where is Marin from? Let's go back here. Martin Marin is from uh, Minneapolis. He's in uh, high school Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, I mean, you've got you've got that. Uh, Su- uh, Suda Collins of South Carolina. One of my One of my many fascinating recent historical site visits was to Mayville, South Carolina, the birthplace of Mary McLeod Bethune. The artifacts are well-preserved, and the staff and family members are knowledgeable and welcoming. Another museum which had a profound impact during and after my visit was the W.E. Du Bois uh, Center in Ghana. Okay, so here you go. Left, right, left. Uh, Adam Lay. Adam Lay is from Baltimore, Maryland. My favorite local historical site is the Hampton National Historic Site, which is the best preserved Georgian architecture in the United States and was the largest estate in Maryland in 1790. It also has the original quarter for enslaved persons and beautiful old-growth trees. Right, so this is this is what you get out of this. Um, it's Oh, you got this beautiful house, but you've also got the old slave quarters, and you got to talk about that side of it, right? It's not just about the people that live there or the house. No, 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 you got to get into these things too. Uh, Braginsky also has something, you know. She's a. It's in Los Angeles. It's a it's a plaza that marks the settling of the city in 1781, El Pueblo de la Reina de Los Angeles. Uh, the plaza recognizes the founders who settled the city. Um, okay, that's interesting. But it also has some things about indigenous peoples and more complex view of the past. And then you get, if you could travel back in time and meet any historical figure, who would it be? And look at the people that these people want to meet. This is where you get the uh, the biases in your history classes. October. Uh, Jihan, Rivana Jihan. I don't think we've talked about her yet. Let's see. Yeah, oh, yeah, we did. That's, that's the one from Chicago. Rivana Jihan. This is the one from Chicago. Octavia Butler is currently the top of that list. Now, I've never even heard of this person before, but uh, her work with emergent strategies and constructing a potential future outside of carceral systems, outside of exploitation, and within frameworks of transformative and restorative practices was prescient. Butler was but one in a long line of activists and artists working for the world in which we will have room to thrive, and her work is a culmination of that lineage. So this some leftist activists that, I mean, this reads like critical race theory jargon, nonsense, jumbling word salad non- nonsense. That's who these people are. This is the teacher of the year, right? Uh, Braginsky said, visiting archives feels like time travel to me. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to hold James Baldwin's papers, seeing his notes to himself and his drawings in the margins, smelling his cigarette smoke, still clinging to his papers, felt like traveling back in time and sitting with Baldwin. Or a Mark a Martin Merrin would, would want to have a, a dinner party with Frederick Douglass, Alexander Hamilton, and W. E. W.B. E. Du Bois. Now what's funny about that is that I'm sure Hamilton wouldn't even be one in the room with these people. He he wouldn't be there, right? Maybe Douglas and Du Bois would would but Hamilton would would be out of place in that meeting, if we're actually going to have Hamilton come back. To discuss how the roots of the U.S. today might be traced to the time period in which they lived, worked, and wrote. See, there you go. The roots of the current system are all Douglas, Hamilton, and Du Bois. That's the, I mean, I, I don't think he's wrong about that. I don't think he's wrong about that at all. But this is, these are the people you would pick. It shows you who these people are. Again, I'm not saying there's any uh, history is com- history is complex. You have all kinds of people people to focus on, but this is this these are the these are the finalists for these awards. This is where the profession is. It's very leftist. And then Adam Lay says, as a historian, I've always been more drawn to the everyday lives of ordinary citizens than to the elite figures whose stories most often fill our history books. If I were to choose a certain figure from early US history, perhaps it would be the radical abolitionist John Brown. Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe he, he might kill you, though, because maybe you're not in line with his thought. I'd have plenty of questions for him. And then you have Duke Ritchie. Duke Ritchie, let's see, which one was Duke Ritchie? Duke Ritchie's from Tennessee. So here's his answer. If I could go get in the fabled, fabled Back to the Future DeLorean, get the flux capacitor doing its job, and hit 88 miles per hour, I would go back to 1861 to meet my great-great-grandfather, Joe Ritchie who was a poor poor East Tennessee farmer who chose to fight with the Union Army in the Civil War, in part because he hated the uppity planters that constantly reminded people like him that they were beneath the slaveocracy and the social pecking order. Known as a Lincolnite in the Confederate South and persecuted heavily for going against the rebel grain, both during and after the war, Joe gave up a lot that I will not get into here. But suffice it to say, he made decisions, some of them heroic and principled, some of them perhaps boneheaded that would impact his family, including me, for multiple generations. Eventually, in part because of his politics, he was murdered in the years following the war. I'd like to get to know him and try to understand him better, because I think understanding him would help me understand a lot about this place I call home, the war, the miserably failed reconstruction, the lies of the lost cause, and how my own family fits into those narratives. So you see, good leftist here. Good, uh, just... This is when I laugh at people say, well, I mean, I'm doing this work. It's really going to stick it to the man, the narrative, and all these things. We're going to talk about the lies of the lost cause. That's what everybody talks about. So so really, you're just going along with the establishment then. You really want to be someone against the grain? Talk about the lost causes, the quote-unquote lost cause, in a positive way. Uh, My gosh, I mean, now you're heroic in the modern profession. Now you're doing something real. So I mean a lot of these things, and they ask him about a a, a project, uh, this stuff is pretty benign. Uh, but when you read these things, when you read what these these historians are doing, it's it's amazing because their left-wing slant is so evident. And then you send your kids off to these schools, and this is what they get. And these are the people that are, I mean, you look at some of these individuals like uh, Adam Lay. He just looks like a smug little guy. And just, you know, some of them just look like, you know, Justin Mitchell looks like a happy happy guy. But some of these people, you and if you get my email list, I'll send you the, the uh, article to this. But you look at this stuff, and you think these are the people that are directing American history at the secondary secondary level? Not not for college, not for colleges or universities. But these are the people teaching, you know, high school students, and they're creating activists. That's the whole point. In fact, they say it outright now. My job is to create activists, and they're going to be an activist for the things that I think are important. It's sad, really, that historians have, have come to that. This is the age of history but this is where we are. And that's why I wanted to talk about this today because much of the problem we face is not a lack of history in America. It's that this is the history that people are getting. Everything, everything traditional is bad. Uh, every, all the great men, they're not great really. They're just awful people but yet all these other people are great. I mean, we want to learn about John Brown. We're going to have a conversation with these we're going to have a conversation with these activists. And we're going to teach people to be these activists. And I'm going to dress up as Susan B. Anthony. We're going to read the Declaration of Sentiments. And this is what we're going to do because I'm dressed up as Susan B. Anthony. Again, do they really does she really talk about Susan B. Anthony and what Susan B. Anthony said about things? I don't know if she'd be so in line with her. Maybe she would be. I don't know. But that's where we are it's not it's not history to understand it's history as a weapon and that's the unfortunate direction of history in the modern establishment the modern academy all right see you tomorrow on the brian mcclanahan show see you then